Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Karen Palmer, a senior fellow here at RFF and director of RFF's Future of Power initiative. This marks our second episode in a row featuring an RFF expert. We're always looking for a diversity of guests here on the program, but it's also a real pleasure to have some of the leading experts on various topics right in-house. And Karen has deep expertise in the U.S. power sector and has authored numerous publications on electricity policy drivers and options, on power market design, on electrification of various sectors of the economy, and more. Uh, I'm also psyched to be joined by such a capable and kind lady in celebration of International Women's Day on March 8th. So today, Karen and I will be discussing a new report released by the National Academies entitled The Future of Electric Power in the United States. Karen and her co-authors on this study, including RFF board chair Sue Tierney, were tasked with framing a broad set of issues facing the U.S. power sector over the next several decades and with providing recommendations to a range of decision makers on how to address those drivers. It's a meaty, thoughtful, timely study, and I'm looking forward to learning more about its conclusions. Stay with us. Karen, thank you so much for joining me on Resources Radio. I know it's been a while since listeners heard your voice on the program, and it's really great to welcome you back. Thanks, Kristen. It's great to be here. Great. So just as a refresher, can you tell our listeners a bit about your own background and how you came to focus your research on the power sector in particular? Well, sure. So when I was in grad school, which was a few decades ago now, um, my studies sort of focused on industrial organization and regulation. And in my dissertation, I took a look at issues of rate setting and cross subsidies in the telecommunications sector. And mind you, this was in the pre-cell phone era. So I was familiar with state regulation of a natural monopoly. And a lot of the same institutions and ideas also applied to the electricity sector. And another thing that was going on in the world at the time is my joining RFF was coincident with a growing interest by state um, electricity regulators in taking further account of environmental costs in their planning that they do for sort of how electricity would be supplied in the future. And this was a time when the electricity sector was uh, predominantly subject to regulation. So it was a a good time to think about issues at the intersection of electricity, markets and regulation, and environmental issues. But then shortly after I joined RFF, and this was following the passage of the Energy Policy Act of 1992, which, by the way, is a piece of legislation where a young Phil Sharp, (laughs) as a member of Congress, Mm -hmm. and um, played an important role, and of course we all know Phil is our, our former president, and that precipitated a move to rely more on markets to price uh, electricity at wholesale and also to make changes um, to rules and institutions that allowed for more competition in in providing electricity. And at the same time, uh, several states were exploring this idea of customer choice and also allowing competition in retail electricity supply. So to help inform those transitions and policy development and policymakers, as they sort of confronted these challenges and made important policy choices, um, Tim Brennan and I led a group of folks at RFF who worked on um, an electricity restructuring policy primer that we called Shock to the System. 
doing that um, book gave me an opportunity to really dive deep into the sector and the various ways that electricity is produced, priced, and delivered to customers across the country. And there are a variety of different ways, as we highlight in this new National Academy study. And then a few years later, Tim and I um, wrote an update to that book that we called Alternating Currents. It sort of reflected changes that happened in the five years after um, Shock to the System came out, which I believe was 1996. Since then, um, combating climate change has increasingly become a focus of environmental policy and also particularly in the electricity sector. And I'd say there's always an audience for insights on climate policy design. You know, sometimes that audience is more heavily weighted toward the states, and sometimes it's stronger in Washington, D.C. Um, we do work that tries to speak to all these, all these folks. So that's sort of the evolution of my work on electricity and environmental issues during my oh. career. Well, that's great. That's great. I want to give a shout out to those book titles as well, because they're very, they're very good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Thanks. Sure. So just one other introductory question before we talk about the specific study here. But our, our conversation today is, as I noted, about a recently released National Academy study. And I feel like National Academy studies are referenced pretty regularly here on Resources Radio, and they all seem to have this extra amount of gravitas to them. So before we talk about the particulars, can I talk about sort of the mechanics of National Academy studies in the abstract and what it looks like to be a part of one of these studies. Can you just say a little bit more about how the research comes together? Sure, sure. So so when the National Academies does one of these studies, um, they reach out to a broad range of experts who cover the landscape of issues that the study is seeking to address. So um, typically, I mean, I don't know if there's a typical approach, of course, it depends on the topic, but the study teams tend to draw from academia and research institutes, and in our particular case, you had RFF, we had a national lab, we had a representative from EPRI, um, but also from you know, members of the sector itself, um, non-governmental organizations like industry organizations or trade groups, and folks who've held important positions in relevant parts of the government. So like Sue Tierney would fit that bill for sure on our committee. And, and the chair of the committee plays a really big role in helping to identify good committee members and, and sort of help strike a balance. It's important to recognize everyone on this committee is a volunteer, but there are also National Academy staff people who play important roles in moving the process along, as well as being a resource to committee members. So um, I, I want to add, too, that our committee, which is under the leadership of Granger Morgan of Carnegie Mellon University, was top-notch, and it was a lot of fun to work with. <laughs> now, <laughs> the research part of the work involves a whole bunch of activities. Um, there are several meetings, and those include you know, working sessions, but also hearing from, from speakers. So there are public meetings that are open to the broader public who can hear these presentations as well that we that the committee hears on various aspects of the research. And for our study, we had two workshops that were really focused, kind of deep dive. One was a day and a half and one was a day long. The first one was focused on cybersecurity and the second one was focused on electricity models to inform planning. And we both of those um, also had a, a reports associated with them on, on what was, was said at the workshops. And our, our committee met several times, sometimes in person, of course, that was pre-COVID, sometimes online, particularly post-COVID, um, sometimes as a group uh, as a whole, and other times in smaller groups to focus on particular chapters or aspects of the work. And I so participated in, in all these various types of 
activities. And I have to say, I learned something at every meeting because, um, like I said, it's a really diverse group. Uh, one last thing I want to say that helps to give the NAS studies that gravitas that you write about is that these studies have a rigorous review process. And that includes um, gathering input from several experts and also an independent review coordinator that's a member of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine staff that makes sure that all the comments are addressed. So solicit comments, the, they're organized by the, by the staff members, and then the members of the committee go through and, and address all those comments. And I think this process really helps to ensure that the committee's work is up to snuff, as you might say, with experts in the field. And also, you know, it helps to identify gaps and, and things like that. So, you know, actually helping to make the report stronger. And I think in general, it's another example of the important role that peer review plays in helping to ensure that that research is high quality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that background because I do feel like um, these National Academies studies are critical parts of the research dialogue and folks don't always, myself included, have a sense of what goes into them. So that's great. Thanks. Um, okay, so let's turn to the study at hand, which is the future of electric power in the United States. And what was your mandate as an authorship team in putting this study together? So this study was requested by Congress and they directed the Department of Energy to ask the National Academies to evaluate the medium to long-term evolution of the electricity sector. And they asked in particular that we focus on four aspects. So the first is technologies, you know, technologies that are used for generation, storage, power electronics, sensing and measuring, controls, cybersecurity, and also loads or, or demand on the system. The second um, was related to planning and operations, which basically means looking at how um, current practices could evolve in response to changing generation mixes, other technology developments, or changes in the way electricity is being used by customers. The third aspect they asked us to look at was business models in the sector, and that includes potential changes to the oversight of the industry and to the way markets operate. And the fourth um, aspect that they asked us to look at is grid architectures. And that includes both technical and jurisdictional challenges to implementing various ways that the grid might be organized in the future. So those okay. are kind of the four things that we were asked to look at. Okay, pretty, pretty hefty mandate there. And I just want to kind of tack on to one thing that you mentioned too. And you and your co-authors are, you know, you're pretty clear in this report that, um, you know, this is this report is not meant to be a sort of prognostication, if you will, of what the U.S. power system will definitively look like several decades in the future. And I, I guess I just wanted to ask a little bit more why that was really a fundamental tenet of this work. And sort of, you know, if, if it's not a sort of crystal ball approach, um, how did you approach this study? Again, not trying to predict the future, but with something else in mind. Yeah, so I think you're you're quite right that our committee was very careful not to focus on what will happen to the grid, but instead lay out ways that it could evolve. And I think it's fair to say we took that approach for a couple of reasons. The first is something that we lay out in the study is that prior efforts to predict what the electricity system will look like in the future are generally wrong, in part because predicting um, fuel prices and technology cost trajectories, particularly for new technologies, and even future trajectories of electricity demand is really challenging. And so we give some examples of where that has gone awry. And we just didn't want to get 
caught in the trap of making a single forecast, as doing so would involve making a lot of assumptions about things that are really uncertain. So given all that uncertainty, we decided it was more prudent to focus on ways that the system might evolve. And one of the first things we do in the report is describe what we mean by the system by introducing its three-layer architecture that consists of an organizational layer, an information and communications technology layer, and a physical layer. So starting with the last one, um, I'm going to describe a little bit more about what those mean. So the technology layer is how people usually think about the grid. It consists of generation, transmission, and distribution, sort of the physical parts of the, of the grid. But there's also a layer that's about collecting information, that is sensing what's going on on the grid, managing all the data that comes along with that, and controlling operations of the grid. So that's what I mean by the uh, information communications technology layer. The organizational layer includes a number of things, such as engineering, planning, and design, but also the policies and regulations that govern the sector. It's important to recognize that these currently differ a lot across the U.S. and vary from region to region. And the last piece of this organizational layer is the markets where electricity is transacted. So these three layers are integrated with each other, and they also um, interface in important ways with other infrastructures in that you know, are part of our society, and those include the natural gas infrastructure, water infrastructure, transportation, and those interactions kind of work two ways. That is, um, natural gas supplies inputs to the grid, and it also uses electricity in the natural gas system. So that's definite two-way interdependencies here. So what we do in the report is we lay out different ways this architecture could evolve with a focus on three things, extending the electrification with carbon-free electricity as a means of system decarbonization. The second thing is the locus and nature of power system control. So how centralized or decentralized and potentially autonomous the system becomes in the future. And the third thing is the use of direct current transmission and power electronics in the grid. So our intention is sort of envision institutions, research, and policies that are going to be largely robust to where this future goes, but also that will help promote one or more of the goals that we identify uh, for you know, the electricity system, which are primarily you know, keeping the system safe um, is really important, but also balancing three important attributes, and those are affordability and equitability, um, keeping the grid sustainable and clean, and also reliable and resilient. So it's, that's kind of the framework that we operate under in this in this study. Yeah, well, and, and you're doing a great job of illustrating sort of the many ways in which um, drivers of change in the U.S. power sector are interconnected, and the number of layers across which you really need to look in order to think about the evolution of the power sector. And so you mentioned a number of those drivers, you know, efforts to decarbonize the U.S. economy, possible accompanying large growth in future demand for electricity, um, whether the grid becomes more distributed, uh, including distributed energy, more storage, concerns over equity. So, you know, there are these all of these drivers that are identified in the report. Um, do any of those forces or drivers that you've identified kind of play an outsized role in your mind as really the driver or one of the big drivers moving forward? Or are they really important to kind of look at holistically? So 
That's that's a tough one. I mean, I think all these drivers are important, and I don't want to diminish the role of any of them. And also point out that there's important overlaps between some of these drivers that shouldn't be ignored. But um, in order to 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 focus today, I guess I want to talk about a couple of things that I do think could be particularly important. Um, and the first is efforts to decarbonize the sector. So in the chapter where we talk about the drivers, we document the success in what we call the shallow decarbonization of the electricity sector that has occurred in recent decades as a combination of sort of economics and policy that have led to a switch from coal to natural gas and renewables for power generation and some successes with energy efficiency that have helped to hold down growth in electricity demand. And these factors help to reduce um, emissions of conventional pollutants such as SO2 and NOx in addition to, to carbon emissions. But Really, if we look ahead, you know, those are, you might say, the easy part, looking ahead to meeting our climate goals, and which in constitute to avoid to the greatest extent possible the worst effects of climate change, we need to do deep decarbonization. And exactly how or when that will occur, both in terms of what mix of technologies will be used to produce electricity, you know, and there's going to be a role for renewables and and maybe some role for other non-emitting technologies as well, and the role of electricity in decarbonizing transportation industry and buildings, that's all pretty uncertain. Um, we do know that renewables are going to play a big role because their costs have fallen, and, and, and wind and solar are very popular with the public, but they also raise challenges to grid operators and are going to require investments in transmission and storage, both of which have their own challenges. But what is certain is dramatic change is going to be needed on that front. The second driver that I that I wanted to focus on, because I think it's more new, um, is what's happening at the grid edge, both in terms of distributed generation and smart devices. So you can think of the edge of the grid is really where the customers live, but it's also increasingly where distributed resources live, for example, rooftop solar generation, and also where the EVs of today and the future will be charged, and perhaps other new smart sources of demand that could be controllable by others, um, and be a resource on the distribution grid and keeping that balanced, and maybe even to the grid at large as folks seek to integrate more variable generation like wind and solar. So um, having more generation and electricity or other forms of storage at the grid edge could also make electricity supply to customers more resilient to outages that happen in the bulk power system. Um, so, but if efficient use of all these devices are going to require more exposure of either customers or some sort of aggregators or agents to time varying electricity prices. And that, of course, has its own challenges. Automation could maybe help with this acceptability and kind of negotiating those, those varying prices. Um, one important issue that comes up about uh, controllable devices at the grid edge is that they communicate a lot with the grid and they could raise both privacy concerns and cybersecurity issues mm -hmm. that can't really be ignored. So if folks are interested in the broader issue of cybersecurity and the electric system, I really want to recommend chapter six of our report, which takes a very comprehensive look at those issues um, and, uh, yeah, would be a, a good resource. 
That's great. Well, and Karen, you mentioned, I think that there are pulls in sort of both directions, if I'm interpreting this correctly, on the relationship between decarbonization of the power sector and its resilience and reliability. So, you know, wind and solar are intermittent resources. They, you know, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And so I think that's led to some concerns about more reliance on those resources moving forward. But then, as you mentioned, some of these, you know, sort of grid edge technologies may actually help with resilience over the long term, particularly storage. And so how do you see the relationship between the decarbonization driver and sort of the resilience and reliability need within the power sector? That's a great question, Kristen, particularly in light of uh, the recent grid outages in Texas that were precipitated by extreme weather events and, and it caused a lot of hardship in the state. So resilience of the system is really top of mind for folks. And um, lingering briefly on that topic, I want to also recommend another National Academies study produced by another committee, but that was also chaired by Granger Morgan, and there was a lot of overlap between that committee and our committee. The title of that 2017 study is Enhancing the Resilience of the Nation's Electricity System. And one of the findings of the new study is that several of the recommendations of that study have yet to be implemented. So um, Mm -hmm. we're continuing the chain here. But for listeners who are really interested in getting deep on grid resilience writ large, I, I recommend that earlier study. With respect to links to decarbonization, let me say first that, that because whatever path we take, reliance on intermittent wind and solar is likely to grow, that will necessarily require a mix of integration strategies for those um, intermittent resources. And that includes transmission to access distant wind and to integrate markets with different resource and demand profiles in time so they can kind of fill in for each other. Also adding storage to the grid, both central storage and maybe decentralized storage, and activating through rate design and other strategies, flexible demand. So um, another thing to recognize about renewable resources is they also have seasonal variations in their ability to deliver power that have to be managed. And that's even more challenging because you're going to need long-term storage to deal with that or some other types of resources. And um, getting our arms around this is going to require doing a better job of predicting those supply variations across time and space that are going to help um, address the issues of reliability. There are will likely need to be some source of firm energy to meet demand during periods of sustained loss of sun and wind. And what form that will take is a bit uncertain right now and will depend on technology developments and and policy design, among other issues. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is as the grid becomes substantially decarbonized and electrification becomes the path to decarbonizing much or some or possibly much of the rest of the economy, that will likely place a higher value on having reliable and resilient grid as even more end uses like space heating and transportation will be reliant on the grid. You know, people um, in Texas talked about going out to their car to charge their devices and and things like that. And, you know, um, if if your car is also electric, there there may be some, some limitations to the diversity that is currently provided. So, but... Most newly electrified end uses also have an element of flexibility to them, as um, 
There's some flexibility in when electric cars are charged and there's storage capability in the battery that could become a resource to help integrate renewables, for example, or provide um, so-called ancillary services on the grid by varying the way that those um, devices are charged. So it's a complex dance, if you will, and regulations, incentives, and controls, and also consumer willingness to surrender control of some of these newly electrified loads, you know, electric heat pumps, for example, are going to be part of the story about how effectively that all comes together. Mm, yeah, another complicated story for sure. So I, I guess I want to turn to another topic, um, but one that really jumped out at me in my look at the report. Um, and, and that's the, the number of times in which you and your co-authors referenced equity, which is, of course, a topic that we hear a lot about these days in various contexts, but not necessarily in the context of the power sector, or at least not as regularly. So um, so what are some of the ways in which you and the other study authors kind of factored equity into your thinking about the evolution of electricity in the United States? Yeah, so... Um well, the report has an important discussion of issues of energy poverty and energy security that exist today. And this is reflected both in the, the inability to pay for services that could lead to disconnection from the grid and also constraints on the ability to invest in more energy efficient appliances or home upgrades or things that could lower demand for energy. Um, and the report also recognizes the potential for energy poverty and, and high costs for people who have challenges there to become even more of an issue in the future as the technologies at the grid edge, such as rooftop solar, behind the meter storage, and electric vehicles with smart chargers, to name just a few, are accessible primarily to high-income customers. And to the extent that they use these options to take some of their demand off the grid, it's going to lead to more legacy costs for those who, who can't access these services. So, um, so, you know, today there are bill payment assistant programs in some areas, but given the costs associated with grid modernization that, you know, we anticipate in this study, those may not be adequate. And so there's going to need to be careful attention paid. Um, Regulators need to give care to recognizing that electricity is indeed an essential service and it needs to be universally available and affordable to everyone. We also point out in the report that um, to the extent that electricity continues to be produced, at least partially with fossil fuels, it does have adverse environmental impacts, you know, less than it used to as we've migrated away from coal. But nonetheless, it's important to take care that these impacts don't disproportionately burden those who are at least able to deal with them. So we, we do include some specific recommendations to local regulatory bodies, that, you know, those that are organized by the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissions or, or NARUG, um, to work in partnership with DOE to accelerate and deepen their evaluations of new rate structures and other policies with an eye toward um, how transforming the grid will affect issues of equity. And, and to do this on a regular basis using good social science techniques on, in order to identify ways to evolve best practices that address these possible um, inequitable or adverse outcomes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's actually a perfect lead into my last question for you, Karen, which is the report 
calls out a number of specific recommendations. It's very, uh, I'm going to say, no pun intended, but empowering in that sense, Um, because I didn't even really do that on purpose. There you go. Um, But there are a number of, you know, sort of specific recommendations embedded in the report, and they are are directed at various entities. Some, for example, the Department of Energy, others at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and still others, you know, at Congress and state legislatures, Um, again, showing the diversity of players involved in working with this sector. So um, to sort of close the substantive part of our conversation, I wondered if you could pick out maybe the top two recommendations that really resonated with you, either because they strike you as these are, you know, these are particularly important or because they seem like really important places to get started. So I guess, yeah, if you can sort of give a shout out to your favorite recommendations, if you will, knowing that there are many more that we won't get to, but that would be great. Right. You know, I was thinking about um, thinking about that and, it's really hard to pick the two most important <laughs> recommendations because there's so many and it's like two podcasts worth, but, but let me, um, let me just pick a couple that okay. I think do warrant attention now. And at least um, probably both to a certain extent, uh, I say now because, you know, we're thinking about ways to stimulate the economy as we emerge from the ravishes of the COVID pandemic and seek to put the economy on a better growth path. And I think, um, some of these recommendations will have that potentially added benefit and wasn't particularly something we focused on in the in the study. But so so let me talk about the first one. And that's it's more of a collection of, of recommendations related to public support for research, development and demonstration in the electricity sector. So in the report, we document how the U.S. is. Um, significantly behind other OECD countries as well as China in terms of investment in RD&D and also note that U.S. investment in energy sector RD&D or electricity sector RD&D has been roughly flat since the mid-1980s. The one exception to that was the boost that happened under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 that you know helped to get us out of the, the uh, recession that happened then. So um, We review what others have been saying about how there should be an increase. And based on on that and our own sort of deep thinking, we recommend at least a doubling of expenditures over the next 10 years and perhaps a tripling of expenditures on programs that help to bring new technologies to market because that's a a particularly challenging area. And I think the time frame we think about there is in part due to the fact that there's limits to absorbing new, new spending. We want it to happen smartly. So we emphasize the importance of spending these resources wisely, discuss what that means in terms of best practices, and, and some of these are already in place in terms of programs that have been developed at DOE and other places over the years. And we also touch on the importance of sustained funding, as in multi-year funding, for research and development of technologies that are going to be necessary for decarbonization, because we need to enable some new areas of discovery, and that takes time. A second aspect of this is we put emphasis on research spending on grid modernization and developing tools that can help with simulating the future grid and therefore preparing for it. So a lot of these recommendations have sort of the technical engineering and modeling research sense, but we also call for social science research to understand how policy, markets, and institutions can and should evolve to produce efficient and equitable outcomes for the sector and for consumers as it evolves. So that's one group of recommendations. The second one I want to talk about is um, 
more focused specific recommendations related to transmission planning. So as I mentioned before, transmission is going to be even more important in the future as reliance on renewables grows and access to good wind and solar resources will require more transmission investment and building lines that span state and utility service territories, which is always a challenge. So we make recommendations to both the Congress and the states to support the evolution of planning for and siting of regional transmission facilities in the US that ask for um, changes in the federal law to do the following. First is establish a national transmission policy. The second is asking Congress to direct the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC to expand on the policy bases for regional transmission planning. You know, transmission planning has focused a lot on keeping the grid reliable, but planning is also going to be important for realizing clean energy and, and decarbonization policies. And so that, that needs to be integrated into that planning better. We also call on Congress to give FERC the responsibility to designate new national interest electric transmission corridors and to approve um, interstate transmission lines within them. So this is would be new authority for FERC. And lastly, you know, we recognize that um, the this process is going to involve local communities and they need to have input. So we direct DOE to provide funds to states, communities, and tribes to enable meaningful participation in these planning and siting um, exercises. So ensuring a seat at, at the table for them as well. So those are two that I want to highlight. Again, I want to point out there is many uh, important recommendations related to numerous issues, including such things as cybersecurity and workforce development. I know the report is long, but there is a summary, and I really would invite all the electricity nerds out there, as well as those of you with policy inclinations or responsibilities in the energy space to, to give it a read. Great. Well, Karen, this has been great. Thank you so much for talking us through this. Again, very, very meaty, very substantive, and obviously the product of a, of a tremendous amount of work um, by a number of people, you included. So yeah, thanks for talking us through the report. And we have reached the time for our closing feature, Top of the Stack. So let me ask you, Karen, what's on the top of your stack? What would you recommend in terms of good content, either on this topic or you know, just general interest even, um, to our listening public? Well, thanks, um, Kristen. So I have a electricity related recommendation. And, you know, in this time of COVID, I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, because um, mm -hmm. it's a great thing you could do, you know, running, walking, doing the dishes. Anyway, a new one that I recently discovered is Volts. And this is hosted by David Roberts. He also publishes a newsletter by the same name. The podcast is is low key, but it's full of lots of content. It's a good way to learn about assorted climate and clean energy policy issues, as well as technical stuff about the grid. Um, and it's a recently launched podcast that doesn't have a regular schedule, but there's a track record now of several of them. And it always tackles interesting and important issues. He recently featured a series on transmission that I found to be particularly illuminating. And the most recent episode <laughs> touches on lessons from the power outages in Texas. So I definitely recommend that podcast to your listeners. Okay, great. Well, we know that our listeners like podcasts, so that sounds perfect. <laughs> well, Karen, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks. It's great to talk to you, Kristen. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support.
If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.